Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. My respected brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to be in your presence today. I, uh, I was given 30 to 40 minutes to speak, thankfully. Initially, they said you can speak as long as you want, but that's never a good idea, you know, to hand a mic to an imam and say, you know, speak as much as you want. Otherwise, we'll be here until Maghrib. I want to share some reflections that are rooted in the Qur'an because the, the theme of this conference is political and social reform in light of the, the prophetic biography. So I'd like to begin with Surah 57, verse 25, to kind of set the stage. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Holy Qur'an, He says, لَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُلَنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ وَأَنزَلْنَا مَعَهُمْ الْكِتَابَ وَالْمِيزَانِ لِيَقُومَ النَّاسُ بِالْقِسْطِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in surah 57 verse 25, he speaks about the ultimate objective behind sending messengers, equipping them with miracles, revealing scriptures over the course of human history. What is the purpose? What are these prophets, whether they're Ibrahim, Musa, Isa, what are they trying to achieve? What is this all about? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, The objective, the ultimate aim of prophethood, of revelation, is to establish justice. From a Quranic perspective, human prosperity is predicated on the establishment of justice. In fact, justice is such a supreme virtue that God imposes it upon Himself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is the all-powerful, there is no opposing force that can inhibit Him from doing as He pleases. He Himself imposes the virtue of justice. He opposes it upon himself. Allah says in a divine narration, a hadith Qudsi, Ya ibadi, O my servants, inni haramtu dhulma ala nafsi. I have made oppression forbidden upon myself, and I am the Lord of the worlds. وَجَعَلْتَهُ بَيْنَكُمْ مُحَرَّمًا And I have made it forbidden upon you. فَلَا تُظَالِمُ so don't wrong each other. Don't violate each other's rights. Don't oppress each other. The Holy Prophet ﷺ, he was born in one of the darkest periods in human history. 7th century Arabia. You know, it's funny that when you read Islamic history, when you read the biography of the Prophet, and you read about the social and the political conditions that prevailed in Arabia before Islam, the state of affairs was quite deplorable. 
But unfortunately, brothers and sisters, things really haven't changed very much. You know, we refer to the pre-Islamic era as what? Zamanul Jahiliyyah, the era of ignorance. But when you read the social, the political conditions in Arabia before Islam, you're going to see a lot of modern parallels. So, for example, the Arabs in the 7th century and even before that, they were constantly at each other's throats. Warring factions over the silliest things. They would be locked in this state of constant warfare. It was almost like a pastime. They couldn't tolerate the deafening silence of the deserts. They almost yearned for the clashing of the swords. So the, the age of ignorance, the era of ignorance, is characterized by what? Constant military conflict. Have things changed? A recent study showed that since 1776, now we're talking about the United States of America, that is often you know, put forward as the beacon of light, that all nations need to aspire to emulate the way of this country. Since 1776 until today, the United States has been at war almost 90% of the time. So between, 19, between 1776 and today, if you randomly pick any year, there's a 90% chance that the United States is at war with a foreign country. That's called modern-day jahiliyyah. You know, even President Eisenhower warned the American people of this. You know, he didn't coin the term <clears throat> the military-industrial complex. He didn't coin the term, but he popularized it he was heavily involved in the military. And he understood the danger of creating an economy based on war. And that's what we see today, brothers and sisters. Just look at, if you, if you think war is not a priority, look at our annual budget. How much money do we spend on defense? There's always money for war, but there's never money for education. <clears throat> modern-day jahiliyyah. So the prophet comes into this type of world, a world of violence. He all, if you look at the era of ignorance, it's also an era where there is huge disparity between the rich and the poor. There was no, there was no middle class in 7th century Arabia. You were either like Abu Sufyan who's living it up, charging 1,000% interest, or you're scraping your way by. Have things changed? There was economic injustice in the era of ignorance. You know, today, especially when you speak to people who live in a bubble, you know, they, they come from a place of privilege, 
You know, if you really look at their lives, the reason why they're successful is because they happen to be in the right zip code. You know, your zip code is, is, a, is, a, is a better predictor of your success than your actual skill set. There's almost this contempt for the have-nots. That the reason why you're poor, the reason why you're economically unsuccessful, it's because you didn't try hard enough. So that contempt for people who are economically disadvantaged, it existed in 7th century Arabia, and it exists today. If you're poor, it's your fault. If you worked hard, you would have lived the American dream. If you look at the Qur'an, you see this attitude in the Meccans, the aristocrats. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 47 of Surah Yasin, we've all, we're all familiar with Surah Yasin. Allah says, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ أَنْفِقُوا مِمَّا رَزَقَكُمُ اللَّهِ Give away of what God has given you. I mean, there's a, there's a, a shift in perspective. It's not yours. Give, spend of what God has given you. What was the response? So again, I'm trying to help you understand what Arabia was like before Islam and where we are today. And you'll see that we haven't really progressed very much. What's the response? The pagans would say to the believers, why should we feed people whom if God wanted to, he would have fed them? Meaning it's not our responsibility. That's the world that the Prophet lived in. Where if you're poor, it's your fault. Today, if you're living below the poverty line, if you're just living paycheck to paycheck, it's because you weren't smart enough. You didn't work hard enough. It's not that the institutions are designed to keep you in your place. In 2017, the, the U.S. Census Bureau released its report that indicated that in the United States, which is supposed to be the most prosperous country in the world, there are 40 million people who are living below the poverty line. And I, I think it's actually a lot more than that. I would argue that it's probably one-third. Probably one-third of Americans who are just getting by. So, economic injustice was one of the, was one of the things that characterized the pre-Islamic era. Gender discrimination. One of the most egregious forms of gender discrimination is female infanticide. You were, you were literally buried alive if you had the wrong reproductive system. Now, so there, you know, women were treated as commodities. You know, in 7th century Arabia, if a man died, his son would inherit his properties and his wives. Can you imagine that? They were objectified. They only had ornamental function. Now, I wouldn't say that things haven't changed, but we still live in a world that largely objectifies women. They're exploited. There is gender discrimination. 
So what characterized the pre-Islamic era is seen even in 2019. Now the question is, and before I go on, racism. The Arabs were notoriously prejudiced. You know, even some of the early companions of the Prophet, this racism was so deeply internalized that even some of the companions, would, when, when they would enter the mosque and they wanted to listen to the Prophet's sermon, you know, they wanted to sit as close as possible because, you know, at that time there were no microphones. They tried to sit as close as possible to the Prophet. And one of the companions saw Bilal sitting close to the Prophet and, you know, this companion was an Arab from a noble tribe, and he tells him, Qum ya Get up, O son of a black woman. That's basically the equivalent of using the N-word today. What does the prophet do? The prophet reprimands that individual. Even though they come from a prominent tribe, they're powerful, they're well-known. And the prophet points to the reality of racism. That's, it's a spiritual disease. That racism, you know, it's arrogance that gives birth to racism. So the, the prophet says, you still have the stain of jahiliya on your heart. You need to work on yourself. Because this is a satanic worldview. Because, you know, the first, the first supremacist was Iblis. Ana khayrun min. Why am I better than Adam? Because you created me from clay, you created me from fire, and you created him from clay. Something very arbitrary is used to assert supremacy. So now the prophet enters into this world. He finds all of these types of injustice, racial, economic, gender, constant bloodshed. You obviously want to change the status quo. And today, you know, in 2019, we want to be agents of change. We don't want to live in a world like this. We don't want to live in a world where people barely survive and, and others sit on golden toilets. We don't want to live in a world where people are judged by the color of their skin. So how do we enact change? The Qur'an actually gives us the formula to become an effective reformer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Yusuf. You know, Surah Yusuf is one of the most beautiful stories in the Qur'an. At the end of Surah Yusuf, there's an ayah where Allah says, قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِ He instructs the Prophet to say, to declare the elements, the qualities that you need to be an agent of change, an agent of positive change, to be someone who mends culture. قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرَةِ Number one, if you want to be an effective reformer, if you want to address the social ills in your society, the first quality that you need is what? You have to be a person of insight. The problem is that we, when we want to educate ourselves about human rights issues, about civil rights issues, 
we have a very superficial understanding of the issues. We just know the rhetoric. We don't have a deep, nuanced understanding of what's actually going on. You have to have basira. Not just knowledge. You have to have insight. You have to understand the inner workings of the power structures that prevail. You have to understand how things are connected. If you want to be a civil rights activist, you need to know about the civil rights movement. You have to have the prerequisite knowledge to engage. You need basira. You have to be a person of insight. You have to be aware of current events. You need to be an informed participant. And the Prophet was exactly this. You know the verse in the Quran where Allah says, When those little girls stand on the day of judgment and say, For what crime were we killed? The Prophet was speaking about the human rights issues of his time. The equivalent of that today would be, How come people in Flint still don't have clean drinking water? That's the sunnah of the Prophet, to have basira, to have insight. You have a pulse on what's going on in the world, or at least in your community. Know what's happening in your backyard. So having this prerequisite knowledge, this deep knowledge. You know, don't just have this, you know, this bumper sticker knowledge. You need more than that. You need to have a deep understanding of what's happening. And then the verse continues. So this is verse 108. Of Surah Yusuf. Me and those who follow me. Here, there's an emphasis on group work. You can't do it on your own. You can't eradicate racial discrimination as an individual. You have to work collectively with people. If you want to address the social ills of your time, you have to stop thinking of yourself as an individual. You have to work as a group. And it takes a lot of humility to work with people. You know, there's a verse in the Quran. We all know it. We all read it. We've all memorized it. But... We, don't, we limit it to charity. Where Allah says, You will never attain the highest degree of piety until you give away what you love. When we read this verse, I used to even understand this verse in the context of charity. That Allah is saying that you're not going to reach the highest level of faith unless, you know, for example, you go into your closet and you give away not the Walmart shirt that you bought, but the Gucci suit that you bought, right? Give away of what you love. That's one understanding. That's a pretty surface level understanding. But perhaps Allah is saying you will not attain the highest level of piety until you give of what you love. And we love credit. Organizations don't want to work together because whose logo is going to go on the banner? Who's going to get the credit? We make it more about who gets the credit 
than actually doing the work. And that my message to all Muslim communities that I visit is that when you stop caring about who gets the credit, you'll be amazed at what you achieve. Isn't it enough that Allah knows who's working for Him? If Allah gives you the credit, why do you need recognition from people? So group work, working together. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does He say? قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِ أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرَةٍ أَنَا وَمِنِ اتَّبَعَنِي وَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ And glory be to God. It seems like there's a break in the ayah. It's almost as though God is stating parenthetically that don't forget that all glory belongs to God. Why is that in the verse? Because sometimes when you start making progress, you think that you deserve the credit. That look at how amazing I am. Look at what I've done. Allah says, don't forget that victory comes from Him. Don't have too much confidence in your social activism. Have more confidence in God. You put the effort and you leave the results to Him. Subhanallah. And another thing that you can understand from this was subhanallah is that you know when you try to address the problems in society you're going to make mistakes no one's perfect and sometimes when you face obstacles you become demoralized you're going to feel weakened you're going to you're going to make errors don't let that demoralize you because only god is perfect was subhanallah subhanallah Means glory be to God, which means you negate imperfection from Him. He is perfect, you're not, but don't let your imperfection impede your progress. You're going to make mistakes, you're going to fall. Stand back up, because only Allah is perfect. Wa subhanallah. And then, probably my favorite part of the verse, وَمَا أَنَا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And I am not... From among the polytheists. Why is that verse there? Oftentimes what happens is that when we Muslims get involved in the political process, when we become politically engaged, what happens? We start to compromise our religious values. We start to shed our Islamic principles, so we can be more like who? So we can be more like them. You don't need to strip your identity when you work for Allah. You can be an unapologetic Muslim and still influence change, enact change. I think it's counterproductive when Muslims respond to Islamophobia by saying, oh, we're just like everybody else. There's no difference between us and the rest of the world. There's nothing wrong with saying, yes, we do have differences. I have my own theology, and I'm not going to compromise my, my beliefs. I'm not going to dissolve my identity in the name of social activism. You can retain your identity as an unapologetic Muslim and also bring change. How much time do I have left? Good. All right. 
Just take a sip of water. My sister Donna mentioned the coalition of justice. You know, you know, when we, you know, Hilf al-Fulul. And sometimes we forget that we Muslims, if you want to really change your community, if you want to have an impact, you got to first establish credibility. Because before the Prophet was Nabiullah, he was a Sadiqul Amin. The problem with us is we want to be prophets without first establishing the qualities of a Sadiqul Amin. We can't have selective morality. You can't defend Palestinian rights and turn a blind eye to what's happening in America. Black Lives Matter. Hilf al-Fulul, when the Prophet was in his 20s, before he began his prophetic mission, before the world knew him as the messenger of God, he was a social, he was a social activist, social rights activist. In Arabia, there was a man who came to Mecca, and Mecca was the hub. People used to perform the religious pilgrimage, they used to flock to Mecca, from all around the, the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, there was a man who belonged to a very weak, marginalized tribe. He arrives in Mecca with merchandise. He's a merchant. And Al-As ibn Wa'il, a very prominent Arab from Quraysh, he wants to purchase some of his merchandise on credit. So he says that I'll pay you tomorrow. Give me, you know, this, give me that, and I'll, I'll pay you tomorrow. The next day, Al-As bin Wa'il refuses to give him payment. He says, this guy's a nobody. I'll just take advantage of him. So this man from the tribe of Zubaid, he was, he had nowhere to turn. He went to the different tribes, sought help. Everyone turned him away. So he goes to the Kaaba, and in, in an act of desperation, he takes his shirt off, and he starts to cry. Helpless. And there are a lot of people today who feel like that. They have no one to turn to. They're completely helpless. After that, a group of Meccans came together. And they said that we're going to form a coalition where we will stand up against injustice even if that injustice is perpetrated by one of our own. And the Prophet, who was 20 years old, who was a monotheist, is willing to work side by side with idol worshippers towards the common goal. So going back to the question that was posed to Sister Donna about, you know, you know, when we, when we engage in these social movements, you know, people always ask, are we allowed to work with people from the LGBT community? Are we allowed to work with these folks? Working with people does not mean that you endorse every single idea that they have. If that was the case, the Prophet would have never worked side by side with idol worshippers. We have to come together and we have to identify 
common goals. You're not going to relinquish your faith in Allah if you work side by side with people who have different worldviews. So then you have, so you have Hilf al-Fudur. And then the Prophet begins his mission at the age of 40. So he already established the credibility. He was already involved in issues that were not related to a specific creed. He begins his religious movement in Mecca. What typically happens when you challenge the status quo? What happens? Are you welcomed with open arms? When you speak truth to power, what happens? You get isolated. You become persecuted. You become harassed. You know, we thought, you know, Islamophobia is a relatively new term, but it's a phenomenon that stretches back to the early days of Mecca. The first victim of Islamophobia was the Prophet. How did he deal with Islamophobia? Did he tell the Muslim community, let's just hide? Let's just blend in. No, because he taught them, We're going to be unapologetic. We are going to resist how? Not through violence. Non-violent protest. When Muslims prayed, when they recited the Holy Quran, that was non-violent resistance. And then they were attacked. They were physically assaulted. You know, when you... When you speak truth to power, you become the target of bigotry. And when you're targeted like that, the goal, the aim of bigotry is to make you feel isolated, to make you feel hopeless. What does the Holy Prophet do? He asserts his strength in Mecca by forming an alliance with like-minded people. He sends the Muslims where? To a Christian, astaghfirullah. He does. He sends them to Abyssinia so they can seek refuge with the Christian king. And the Prophet praises him, saying that this is a man who does not perpetrate, uh, he does not perpetrate oppression against people. He's a just man. They try to weaken us. They try to make us feel helpless. There are many people around the world who are good-hearted, who share the vision that you have. So when we are victims of Islamophobic rhetoric, when we're marginalized, when we're isolated, we have to do the same thing as the Prophet. We have to assert our strength by building alliances with people who have an appreciation of social justice. And there are many people like that. So the Prophet goes from minority, marginalized status in Mecca. He goes on his hijrah to Medina, and then you see a huge change. He goes from being the leader of a marginalized, vulnerable community to being the head of state. The Prophet's seerah is a perfect template for Muslim conduct. You want to know how to act when you're marginalized? Mecca. Refer to the Meccan period. Do you want to know how to govern a pluralistic society? How did the Prophet govern Medina? 
The Prophet used the pain and the suffering that he felt in Mecca as the source of his empathy. That's why it was so easy for him to empathize with the minority groups in Medina. And one of the things that he does is that he drafts the Medina Charter. Now very briefly, I'll just go over some of the points and I'll conclude. So the Prophet is the highest ruler in Medina. Who lives in Medina? So you have Muslims from Quraysh, residents of Medina, the Muhajirin and the Ansar. You have Jews who are living in Medina and you also have polytheists who live in Medina. So you have these three different groups and the Prophet outlines how each group is to be dealt with. And you find that this Medina Charter, you can divide it into four, four sections. The first few clauses relate to how Muslims should treat one another. The Prophet conceptualizes this idea of an ummah. You know the word ummah is a derivative of the word um which means mother. And the idea is that we want to build a society where the bonds between the citizens are so close that it's as if all of us are from the same mother. A bond that transcends tribal affiliation. And the Prophet ﷺ, he basically tells the Muslims, you know, the Prophet wasn't a micromanager. You know, so you have the Muhajirin and the Ansar, and they all have, you know, these sub-tribes. And he basically says that, you know, because there, was not a, there wasn't a, a national welfare system in place, he basically told each tribe that take care of your own. You know, if, if you have blood money to resolve, that's on the individual tribe. If there's someone who's poor in the community, we refer him back to the tribe. You take care of the members of your tribe. He empowered these individual tribes to take care of their own. And he, he reiterated that we will always stand up against injustice even if it is committed by one of our own. So again, reviving this hilful fudul. And this is why, as my sister mentioned, that the Prophet used to routinely say that if I was called upon, if I was summoned by this coalition, I would respond. Because it had a noble mission statement. Now when it came to the Jews in Medina, how did the Prophet deal with them? Did he say that you guys have to convert, you know, burn the synagogues? He had the power to do that. But when Allah gives you power, you express gratitude to Him by showing mercy. That you promote a society of tolerance, of love. So the Prophet ﷺ, he basically tells and he mentions all of the different Jewish tribes and says that you are one ummah along with the believers. Meaning what? That we retain our own identities and the Prophet ﷺ, he says that you guys will run your own affairs. The Prophet gave them a certain degree of autonomy. 
He didn't dictate to them. The only time the prophet would summon them, he says to them that if we are invaded, then we all have to rise to the defense of our state. But you're free to conduct your religious programs. That if there's internal conflict, you guys deal with it. We're not going to interfere. We're going to give you semi-independence. The prophet allowed them to worship freely. But he said that, but you're not allowed to. One of the conditions of citizenship is that you're not allowed to support our enemies. You're not allowed to defend our enemies. You don't get involved. You don't commit treason. And I think that's a, that's a fair condition. Don't align yourselves with people who want to kill us because of our faith. So he allowed them to govern themselves to a certain extent. And then when it came to the mushrikeen, you know, there were idol worshippers who were living in Medina. The Prophet doesn't force them to convert. He allows them to live in Medina peacefully. And he says that even though your hearts might be inclined towards Quraysh, you're not allowed to support them against us. If they attack us, you're not allowed to defend them. Basically, the Prophet is saying that you are free to worship idols in Medina as long as you remain neutral, that you don't interfere in state affairs. And furthermore, the Prophet ﷺ in Surah At-Tawbah, which is in the context of what? Of war. There were certain polytheists who committed treason against the Prophet. Even in the context of war, Allah says in the Quran, وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ أَبْلِغْهُ مَأْمَنَ That if any of the polytheists who have committed treason against you, if they seek asylum with you, grant them asylum. Why? So they can listen to the word of God. Because the Qur'an functioned as the constitution. That if they want to come and listen to this constitution, to the Qur'an, which is the basis of law in Medina, they can come and no Muslim is allowed to harm him. It's wartime. But if they seek asylum, they can come, sit with the Prophet, listen to his words, and they can decide. Now listen to this. Look at what the commentators say. They can make a decision on whether they would like to join the Prophet or continue to fight him. If they choose to continue fighting him, the Qur'an says, The Muslims are not allowed to harm him. Escort him to a safe location so they can continue fighting. That's how the Prophet dealt with people who were fighting him. That even if they seek asylum and they want to listen to the word of God, grant that to them. And I'll conclude with this. I know I've said that like five times, but I promise this is, this is for real. So, the prophet's final sermon, and I know, the, you know uh, my sister mentioned uh, the prophet's final sermon. And it, it, is, it is a short sermon. And it's true that when you know that your time is limited, you cut to the chase. You mention the most important things. You prioritize. 
If you look at what the Prophet speaks about in his final address to the Ummah, you know, he speaks about economic injustice. But what does he say? You know, what's unique about the Prophet is that he gets straight to the point. Why does economic injustice exist? One of the reasons the Prophet says, Prophet says that if you want to get rid of economic disparity, you need to abolish a usury-based economic system. You know, no one wants to talk about that. But that's one of the engines of economic disparity. You know, if you just look at this student, the student loan debt numbers in this country, over $1.5 trillion in student debt. Students spend years just paying off the interest. When you buy a home and you get a mortgage, you spend years just paying the interest. And you wonder why we have a society of the super rich and the abject poor. The prophet says you need to address the systems that are in place that create these economic disparities. So he speaks about economic injustice. He mentions the most contentious issues in every area, in every era of human history. He speaks about economic injustice. He speaks about racism. You know, if you want to address racism, you have to address the root of it. It's a spiritual problem. You have to remind people of their common origin that you have one creator. And the Prophet always emphasized this. That you have one father. You, you are part of one family. You're all from Adam, and Adam is from dirt. And then the Prophet says, an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab. A white has no superiority over a black. So he mentions racial equality. And then he mentions women. He speaks about gender discrimination. He says, Women have rights. This was 14 centuries ago. Of all the things to talk about, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about jurisprudential issues. He doesn't say, by the way, make sure that you stand like this when you pray. Make sure you recite this dua. His emphasis is on what? Social issues. Because if people are hungry and they don't feel safe, they're not going to be able to worship. That's why in Surah Quraysh, what does Allah say? Let them worship the Lord of this house. The Lord who satiated their hunger and gave them protection. If people are vulnerable economically, if they don't feel safe, forget about spirituality. Your women have rights. And then, you know, one of the most amazing things is that the Prophet speaks about a practice that was prevalent during the era of ignorance where the Arabs would manipulate time. You know, Arabs in the pre-Islamic era, they liked to go to war. And you have the four sacred months where fighting was prohibited. So if, it, if it's the month of Dhul-Hijjah or if it's the month of Muharram, they would just decide that 
We've decided that this is not the month of Muharram. We will postpone Muharram to another time. So they would do what? They would manipulate time. They would manipulate nature. All the things to mention. The Prophet speaks about the danger of what? Manipulating nature to serve human interests. If the final sermon of the Prophet doesn't hit on all of the most contentious issues in all eras, then I don't know what sermon does. And this is why the Prophet is rahmatan lil because he was a voice for the voiceless and he was a mercy to the world. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for giving me your time. Yes, yes, yes.